Hey, I know you're probably driving or running or cleaning the house or doing something else when you're listening to this, but look, if you're a B2B marketer and you need to start generating revenue from your marketing, then you have to check out our 12-week program, the B2B Incubator. It's built for small, in-house B2B marketing teams with limited time and budget. We give you the strategy, the templates, and the tools to start driving revenue, not just leads. So if you're ready to act on all the advice Kevin and I give you, next time you take that first sip of coffee in the morning, make sure you head to the B2B Incubator and apply now. There's only 10 spots available per cohort with our next one launching at the end of May, 2024. Remember, the B2B Incubator, apply now so you don't miss out. We've had B2B marketing managers, CMOs, marketers in demand generals, content leads, and more all go through this program and they're currently executing the demand strategies that they've created. Some are now even contributing as much as 80% of the pipeline to their business after working through it. Make sure you check out the b2bincubator.com and apply now to start driving more demand and more revenue for your brand. Okay, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the B2B Playbook Podcast. Each week, we discuss strategies and tactics to help B2B businesses grow online. We're your hosts, Kevin and George, a couple of digital marketing professionals. We've waded through the noise and made the mistakes so you don't have to. The B2B world has changed and you need to put your customers at the heart of your marketing. We'll cover how you can use our framework, the five Bs, to create a brand that customers are ready to buy from, love and advocate for. We'll get insights from successful people in the industry and cover the latest trends to keep you on the cutting edge of the B2B world. If you're interested in B2B marketing strategies and tactics that work, then this podcast is for you. Subscribe to get the latest from the B2B playbook first. Remember, successful B2B marketing starts with the buyer. Welcome back to the B2B Playbook, the podcast where Kevin and I are sharing our 5Bs framework for generating more demand. Today is the final episode of our Mind Tricks in Marketing series, and we're going to be talking about price anchoring, the Goldilocks theory, why you need to make your prospects feel pain, and much, much more. These are all techniques that you can use in your marketing to influence the decision-making from your dream customers. We're going to be running you through each of these important principles and sharing exactly how you can implement them in your B2B marketing. Kevin, where are we at in the B2B Playbook podcast? Well, we're in season five of the Playbook podcast, George. And in this season, we're talking about Be the Best, which is the fifth and final B of our 5Bs framework. This podcast, as you said, is all about our step-by-step evergreen framework, the 5Bs, and that comprises of be ready, be helpful, be seen, be better, and now be the best. And Kev, today we are leaning on another favorite neuromarketing book of mine. It's called Blindsight, The Mostly Hidden Ways That Marketing Reshapes Our Brains. It's by Dr. Matt Johnson and Prince Gooman. As you said, Kev, it's right in the context of be the best. Neuromarketing is something that the best of the best companies do. It's something that's normally reserved for the big players, the big brands to use. And we're taking all that goodness and we're wrapping it up, tying it up in a neat little bow, and we're handing it over to you, B2B marketers. It's stuff that you can use, stuff that Kevin and I use for ourselves, for our clients, and I'm very excited to share it. And we're talking about it this season because, as you know, we're talking about all things that make you and your marketing stay evergreen and continue to be leaders in your industry or in your career. And in doing so, we hope 
you see that these elements that we're talking about in this season will really help you make the framework your own, whether that's making it circular or making it something that you can use to continue to see improvements over time. George, let's get right into it. The first mind trick that we wanted to talk about was anchoring. What is that? Let's jump into it. Look, anchoring, the world is a complex stream of never-ending data, Kevin, and our brains cannot simply pay attention to all of it. There's just too much. So to deal with the sheer volume of this information, the brain uses shortcuts. And the biggest one of all is anchoring. Anchors help direct our attention to what's most likely to be important and away from what's likely to be unimportant. And look, they are everywhere. If you grew up in the city, you're used to the traffic noise, the street noise, cars driving, people talking, this constant, reliable level of noise, that's actually your natural anchor. That's what you're used to. But then when you go out into the countryside and you go camping for the first time, which, Kevin, I still haven't done yet, the silence at night is absolutely deafening. You notice it because it's different, and... The opposite is true for people growing up in the country. When they come to the city, God, the traffic, the hustle and bustle, they notice it so much more than you would if you lived in the city. So anchors serve as a mental background against which foregrounds really stick out. And we're never really aware, Kevin, of our anchors or their impact on our behavior. And brands know this and they use it to their benefit. For example, Kev, if you're wondering around the shops and you're wondering if a product is worth the bigger price tag, you know, you end up comparing it to the next big thing that's, or the next best thing that's right next to it. And that's likely also created by the same brand. So brands really use anchoring for two fundamental reasons. One, to capture our attention and to two, really alter our perception of value. Kevin, the brain is always looking for a place to anchor. It's pretty crazy, you know, it's all those things that you see in the shops where, you know, this one brand that has a particular price, then a very similar brand or something that's maybe made by the same brand as George said, but is slightly different, is of a lower brand. So you really start to figure out which one fits best for your particular use case. And we see this applied outside the supermarket as well. In many different cases, if you've ever been to a sales pitch, if you've ever been to any sort of pricing page on a SaaS platform, there's always different tiers or options you can pick. And they have one that's highlighted and it seems to be the best choice compared to the ones next to it on either side because the features and the things that it offers it really seem to speak to you. That's price anchoring at work. And Kev, look, our brains, they're patent-seeking machines. We're, we're constantly learning the patterns of our environment. And these patterns, as we said, they provide a background, the anchors, which then drive attention to potentially important violations of what's going on in that background. And what's pretty cool, Kev, is this type of anchoring really makes evolutionary sense. So survival doesn't depend on taking in 100% of our environment. That would actually hurt our survival odds. Survival depends on quick action and our brains have evolved to process just enough information in order to act. For example, if you're out in the wild, if you're a caveman, a cavewoman, you come across a berry, you think, is this berry a fruit I've eaten before or is it something that's new and potentially poisonous? You don't need to examine, pick up the berry and examine every tiny little pigment of the berry. You just need to look at whether or not it interrupts your pattern of safe to eat berries. And learning patterns like this help save time 
and energy. So Anchor's Cave, they're a real thing. It's something that's deep and innate within us. It's something that we as humans do. As marketers, now that we understand how that works, how can we start to use it? How do marketers already use it? This is where that phrase, zig when others zag, really comes into play. That's a saying that we've talked about, and that's a saying that's often coming up, particularly when it's applied to branding. The psychological anchor in this case is the zag. So if everyone else is zagging, that's what people are used to. So you have to zig to capture the brain's attention or your customer's attention because you're doing something that's different to the direction of everyone else's advertising, everyone else's branding. And one way brands can zig is by tapping into existing associations, which act as pre-made anchors and then break from those and from what's expected. So for example, if you were asked to think of an exotic sports car, you'd probably think of a car that's red or bright yellow. But in the case of Nissan's 350Z, they actually use a burnt orange. So that really also helps to draw attention to their car just based on the color because it's so different from the usual red and bright yellow you see in that space. When you're talking about sports cars, you tend to think of that red sports car maybe a Ferrari or what have you. There's another anchor um, that I myself have when it comes to sports cars. So there you go. That's how you zig. As one example, our brands really try and tap into existing associations and go away from them. Kev, another awesome example is, look, typically brands that sell products to women, they use pink to signal some kind of femininity. And Tiffany, they broke that quite early on by using blue and now that blue that color blue that they use has taken on i guess a whole sort of undertone of its own but that was really quite revolutionary when it didn't really stood out and it served them very well another one of my favorite examples kev of zigging when others zag was the 2006 capri chocolate scandal They were in an absolute PR store because there was a salmonella outbreak. It made more than 40 people sick from their delicious chocolate, really damaged their brand. In response, Kev, they ran this classic ad campaign, which everyone should YouTube and check out. It features a 400-pound gorilla playing the drums to Phil Collins in the air tonight. And when that went live, when that campaign went live, when people saw it, that video quickly got over half a million views on YouTube. Cadbury reported an overwhelmingly positive consumer impression from the campaign, and there was a significant uptick in sales. So there you go, Kev. It's just so random to have this 400-pound gorilla. There was such a good vibe to it that everyone seemed to forget about the uh, salmonella outbreak. Almost even more interestingly, Kevin, they tried to use the same gorilla in future campaigns, but it just didn't work as well. And that's because we came to expect it. It all of a sudden wasn't zigging anymore. The gorilla became the zag. So they needed to do something else. Well, there you go, listeners. We do have to continue to up our game when it comes to zigging when others are zagging, when it comes to that anchoring effect. Now, to really tap into it, we have to keep innovating. Kev, probably worth sharing one way that we've tried to zig while others zag. We figured that in the B2B content space, a lot of people write long-form articles. They share things on LinkedIn. We were thinking about how could we be different, and that's when we thought, hey, why don't we run a live campaign experiment? It's the thing that we did where we collaborated with Justin Rowe and Jess Cook and Ryan Gibson and Pasha Urshad, and we said, hey, let's put our reputation at risk here. Let's put $500 into advertising for the first time, show exactly the process, how we're going to do it from customer research to updating our landing page to 
setting up the ads to running the ads to showing the results and share and take people on the journey with us step by step so they can see how did we do it how did we go what lessons did we learn and all of a sudden people felt like they were following along with the journey as it was happening rather than someone just writing a piece of content of something that's happened at one point in time or an opinion piece and they just slap it there for someone to read or instead trying to really take it to that next level, zigging by telling a story. Now that's a zig in our environment, Kev, because quite frankly, the B2B market is like pretty slow to move. And so just by doing that, we really were able to differentiate ourselves. I think in the B2C market, Kev, if we did that in the B2C space, I'm not so sure it would have got all the attention that it did because the B2C world, and I think it's something we've spoken about recently, the B2C world is so much more competitive that people are constantly looking for ways to zig. And so it's harder to zig. All right, folks, quick breather here. In my time in B2B marketing, generally I've come to realize that there are just certain tools that can be an absolute game changer. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about Leadfeeder. Uh, It's a tool that helps you cut through the data and turn those website visitors into solid leads and opportunities for your business. Leadfeeder shows you which companies are checking out your site tracking their behavior, and it integrates all of this with your CRM. And the result is it's basically like a secret weapon for targeted lead engagement, and it really makes it easier for your team to convert website traffic into sales. Head to leadfeeder.com, give it a free demo, and you'll also get a free extended premium trial when you let the rep know that you found out about Leadfeeder through the B2B Playbook podcast. That's leadfeeder.com. Okay, check it out. Back to the show. But if you're in B2B, chances are it's a lot easier to zig while others are zagging. Great point, George. And I think we can take a lot of those lessons from the B2C space where there is a lot of innovation and maybe just take some of that across to the B2B space and just as a starter to start to play around with some of these ideas. All right, another very important and very useful way that we can use anchoring in the marketing space is when we deal with numbers. To illustrate this, let's talk about an experiment that happened in San Francisco. People on the street were asked if they were willing to donate money to help wildlife affected by a recent oil spill. Being good West Coast Samaritans, most people were willing to donate some amount of money, a generous $64 on average. But when those participants were then given a subtle numeric anchor, via being asked if they would donate a specific number of dollars, it really warped their responses significantly. When this number was just $5, it shrunk the average donation to $20. And when that anchor was $400, their response actually ballooned to $143. So you can see that whatever number you give people as an anchor, it really starts to shift how much they're giving, how much they think is appropriate. Similarly, Kev's William Sonoma, they placed a $429 bread maker on a shelf near their cheaper $279 unit. Now, the expensive one didn't sell, but the sales of the $279 one doubled. So if you think about it, if you are someone who knows nothing about bread making, you're facing only one option at $279, you're thinking is this a good deal? Is it a steal? Is it overpriced? Who knows? Your brain is totally lost, right? You have nothing to compare it to. But all of a sudden, next to it is a $429 bread maker that serves as an anchor. 
A lot of the features are probably quite similar. And hey, all of a sudden, 279 that seems like an absolute cracking deal. Why not go ahead with that? So anchoring is what companies are doing when they use these strategies. Also, we've all probably looked on the back of our clothes or we've probably shopped online and seen the MSRP price, which is the manufacturer's suggested retail price. Now, if you have a $300 MSRP for those Bose headphones, then Amazon actually have them for $150. It makes it feel like a hot buy because the price was anchored at $300. And so you go, wow, what a great discount. Even if, you know, all of Amazon's competitors are listing it for the same price, it still feels cheap. And in that particular case, listeners, you'll notice that if you ever look at Bose's headphones and if you go to their website, they never really do discounts on their website. It's always showing the MSRP and it's just leaving it there. It's almost as if it's a constant reminder to anyone shopping online that here's what the MSRP is. So if you're getting a deal that's better than that from anywhere else, then you should go ahead and buy it. Because when you look at Bose, their main distribution channels are all these retailers, whether that's online or in person. And so they're actually helping that sale volume by doing that price anchoring themselves online. So very interesting case to have a look at in particular to illustrate this example. Oh, I love that example, Kev, and a great strategy from them because people love to go and check out their company's website direct. And if they have the recommended retail price there, but you can't buy it, but then, hey, go and check out one of our retailers and it's discounted, you think, how bloody good is this? Very clever, very clever. Kev, something else I want to talk about related to price anchoring is the Goldilocks bias. Now, what is the Goldilocks bias? If when you're looking for numerical anchors, if the brain is presented with three pricing options instead of two, we always tend to lean towards the middle one, the most reasonable one. Now, marketers often deliberately set up the option they want us to choose as the middle one. Just look at how every single B2B SaaS company structures its pricing. There's always the entry, the mid, and the upper tiers. And guess what always seems like the best value for money? It's the mid tier. Look, it's not B2B SaaS, but just say you're going to the shops, you've gone to buy a steak. You could buy a 12-ounce steak for $18, 14 ounce for $22, or a 16-ounce for $26. Most people are just going to pick that one in the middle. I know that's what I would do. So marketers, get those three pricing options in. We do this for the B2B incubator. We have our self-serve program. We have the cohort program. And then we have the one-to-one version of when you work with Kevin and I. And we haven't inflated any of the prices there. If you choose the one-to-one, there's definitely still value for people in that. But guess what? Yeah, it is a lot more expensive than the group program because you're getting a lot more of mine and Kevin's time. So marketers, include your three pricing options. Really try and gear people towards the one that you want them to choose by placing that in the middle. And you'll know that B2B SaaS platforms are a little clever in that space as well. And they tend to highlight the choice that they want you to pick anyway. So it's usually framed differently. It's usually labeled as recommended. All things that we're we're testing as well, and we encourage you as our listeners to play around and see what's best for your business as well. Okay, Kev, now I want to talk about how our brains either go into automatic mode or manual mode. And then I want to look at how advertisers manipulate that. So Our brains, they're either in automatic mode or manual mode. Automatic is the default state. It's where we act on intuition rather than being aware. 
and in control of our decision making. Now, in automatic mode, our conscious attention is really limited and our brain uses shortcuts to arrive at a reasonable best guess of what it should do. For example, if you go to an ice cream shop, you don't have the time, you don't take the time to conjure up the memories and imagine what every flavor tastes like. You're not looking at the long-term benefits of strawberry versus chocolate. Otherwise, you would be there all day. Actually, Kevin, if anyone would do this, it would be you. But look, instead, what most reasonable people do, like myself, after a quick scan, you just look for the ones that are good enough, and that's what the human brain loves to do. Less thinking is better than more thinking. It's the law of least mental effort. Kevin, I think that's why everyone goes to a Thai restaurant. They look through the menu. They go, oh my God, there's all these new things that I really love to try. And then everyone just ends up either getting like a pad CU or a chicken pad thai. Any of the three most common dishes is what people end up getting. It's the law of least mental effort. And that same law is why we hardly ever go past the first page on Google search results. Some crazy stat shows that 99% or 98% of people don't actually go past that first page. And actually about 50-60% of people will click through on that first result and that will be the one that they then compare all subsequent results to when they're looking at the information or price or product they want to get in that particular search. So that law of least mental effort is really important. It's why things like first mover advantage exists. It really anchors a lot of those subsequent flow on effects from that same law of least mental effect. So as a marketer, you definitely need to play into this by making things as easy as possible for the brains of your dream customers, of your customers. And that involves things like making your website very easy to use, follows a traditional F pattern where you know it starts on the left-hand side, it goes across, and then you can people read down the page. So all your most important information, all the things that you want people to definitely read at the top to the left, and then go down the page and in decreasing lengths to the right as you go down the page. So exactly like an F pattern will start to develop. And you would use these sort of design elements to really optimize for scannability. So use icons to replace words where possible because that's, again, less mental effort for people to understand an image rather than the words to describe a similar sort of thing. So one example is a shopping cart symbol. It's much easier to understand than reading the words shopping cart. And, and frankly, your dream customers aren't really going to be going through your website in detail. There's very few people who's going to be reading the last line on the homepage even, let alone the pages deeper in your website. Uh, so make sure that it's easy for them just to get a vibe from their initial interaction with that page. And then if you're using things like testimonials and quotes to make sure that those things are short and to the point, YouTube, interestingly, have a very clever way of doing this, of making their website easy for people to get into and get lost in. And that is that autoplay feature they introduced in 2014, as do Netflix now, and they both have that. All things that are really trying to tap into that automatic mode where we want to make things as easy as possible and things just sort of happen on autopilot. And before you know it, you're spending money with these businesses. I think Amazon is another great example. They obviously have that two-day delivery or one-click buy system. And they actually, I'm pretty sure they've trademarked the one-click buy system and the name of that. So no one else can actually call it a one-click buy, at least in the States, I believe. 
And that really completely removes any friction around that checking out and ordering process. It keeps your brain on automatic mode. If you've had an order with them before, they've got your address, they've got your billing details. It's one click and away you go. Almost too dangerous, George. Almost too dangerous. Yeah, look, just remove the friction. Don't make people make more decisions than they have to. Use one clear call to action. When people go to the B2B playbook, Com. We, of course, want people to discover our B2B incubator in the head bar that's the main menu that's always present. We have a big orange button that says for serious marketers. And if you click that, that then takes you to the B2B incubator. Like it's not a link that says the B2B incubator because a lot of people who come to our page for the first time don't know what it is. But they see that because it's such an eyesore on the page. And they go, oh, I'm a serious marketer. Like we're just trying to pique their curiosity. They click it and then all of a sudden, hey, we've got something for you. So just direct people's attention to where you want them to go. We've done in-depth customer interviews as well. Even our best customers, our best listeners of the podcast who then go and purchase the B2B incubator, not even they are really reading everything on our sales landing page. They're just skimming it for a vibe. And so trust me, if... They're not doing that for us. Your customers certainly aren't doing it for you either. So make it as easy as possible. Let's shift gears a little bit here, George. Let's go into manual mode. And this is something our marketers and ourselves can really tap into as well. So we understand the power of automatic mode, but there's actually a lot of power within the manual mode. That's the counterpart as well. So most of the time our brain flows into that automatic mode, but sometimes it shifts into a manual mode and we shift into that mode when we're in a new or disruptive environment. For example, if you lived in the US and all of a sudden you were transported to the UK, things would be pretty different. Cars on the other side of the road, cars themselves being different, food is different, people sound different, the weather's different. The brain then is more likely to switch into the manual mode to deal with all this new information that's coming in. But being in manual mode is pretty tiring on the brain and we only have a limited amount of use of it before we really tire out and switch back to automatic mode as much as possible. And brands can really try and use this to their advantage. So one example is the impact of hunger. When you're in a supermarket and the checkout aisles are filled with impulse buys like chocolates and unhealthy snacks, on the way into the supermarket, you go past this with the intention of being healthy. You fill up your basket with all the healthy stuff in there, and that's why your fresh produce is near the front. But then as you check out, as you're tired and you're hungry from the long shopping experience because the aisles are maybe deliberately confusing or the store is deliberately big and you wind through all the aisles, your self-control and your decision-making willpower has really tanked and you've come to the end of your tether and you've become powerless to resist all the junk food that's coming at you right before you check out. And you buy that block of chocolate right? just because you've made too many decisions. Oh God, I'm so guilty of that, Kevin. It gets me again and again. Every single time with that fail, I get that block of chocolate on the way out. Very smart. It works. It works on me. What's kind of scary, Kevin, is a study was done on judges and even judges are significantly less likely to grant parole when it's closer to lunchtime. And why is that? It's because parole requires full deliberation. So it's going to take a lot longer. And when judges are hungry, they're more likely to choose the less strenuous option. Now, judges aren't 
horrible people. It's not that they don't care. They're not even really aware of this. It's just the brain wants to take the less strenuous option at that time. Yeah, don't get that court appointment just before lunch, Kevin. That's a bad one. So there we go, listeners. The key takeaway there is to make it easy. When you need to tap into that manual mode, make sure you're appropriately adjusting your business practices to help you tap into that manual mode as you need it. Okay, Kev, the third and final thing that we wanted to discuss today was loss aversion. Now, I know a lot of you have probably heard about loss aversion, but what it means is, look, for humans, basically, the pain of losing is twice as powerful as the pleasure of gaining. So a great example is if you have a 50% chance of receiving $150 and a 50% chance of losing $100, would you take that gamble? Well, from a mathematical perspective, you should take this bet every time. If you're like me, you probably thought to yourself, no, I'll keep my money. But mathematically, 50% of 150 is 75, and 50% of 100 is 50. So you would stand to gain $25 if you accept this challenge, if you took on this bet. But the brain weights potential losses much heavier than potential gains. And look again, Kevin... It makes evolutionary sense. Hunter-gatherers felt the pain of missing a meal more strongly than the pleasure of gaining one. So most people, they don't play to win. They play not to lose. And it's a pretty dangerous one, loss aversion, because politicians tend to use this to try and terrify us into voting for candidates that are the safe option. So for example, Trump used Ronald Reagan's slogan, from 1980, Make America Great Again. And this speaks to a loss. It speaks to specifically recovering a loss. The campaign suggests that America has lost its greatness and so it needs to be made great again. And it leans into that pain of losing something. And we all know what happened there. You know, that's obviously a very often used case scenario. You'll see those ads on TV. You'll see those campaign trails where people are calling themselves the safe bet are calling themselves the return to things that people want. And so obviously that is the loss aversion in play being used by politicians. All right. And now for the politicians, Kev, let's look at how marketers can use this. Departing with money is very painful. We all feel that you got to make it easy. Afterpay has done so well or did so well and exploded so quickly because, you know, it's broken up payments so it's you're not departing with one huge upfront cost but you are spreading out your payments over a number of months you could try and use a foot in the door technique to try and sell your low cost solution that then naturally leads to an upsell down the road if you're looking at your copywriting frame your messaging around pain instead of pleasure for example which of these sounds better to you kev the first example is our multivitamin provides increased strength and better endurance versus our multivitamin prevents loss of strength and loss of energy. Well, George, as someone who knows the effect of loss aversion, I tend to be a bit more balanced and look for objective information. But subjectively, definitely that second one. I think the effects of the product um, are effectively the same, but just that second one being framed around the pain of loss, uh, it makes a huge difference. We always want to avoid that pain of loss. We want to play to not lose. 
But I think, George, it's also important to understand that while we use those pain statements to shift people throughout different stages of awareness, initially that pain is very important to get people to become problem aware and solutions aware. We need to then shift into the things that they can gain from it. Those statements of pleasure do have a role. They just happen after those statements of pain. Yeah, they absolutely do. But as you said, pain statements are really what get us to stand up and take notice. And that's why we try and use them in our advertising when we're advertising to people who are unaware or problem aware. If we really want to hook them, if we really want to get their attention, you've got to tap into what they find painful, what they stand to lose. Something that I do, Kevin, is I like to tell the story of how marketers, you might be servicing sales, you might be doing a lot of sales enablement work. You probably don't have to do that much reporting to your boss. You realize that they don't really get what you're doing, but you're busy and they're okay with that. I tell the story of what happened to us. It happens to a lot of the marketers I speak to that, look, one day revenue pipeline is going to dry up in that organization. And guess who they're going to point the finger at? They point it at marketing every single damn time. It is horrible. And then I talk about the terrible consequences of that, Kevin. I talk about how I felt so anxious on weekends checking our Google Ads campaigns to see how they were going, about the sleepless nights of wondering, was our strategy right? Thinking about, God, there's so much potential loss here. I could lose my job. I could lose my income. How's that going to affect my life? And so these are pain statements, Kev, that we talk about. And we're not trying to fear monger. We want to make people realize that They've got to take ownership as marketers, that marketers need to be revenue-driven, that they need to be business-minded. And if you don't proactively go and actually do that, no one's going to do it for you, and there's a whole lot of negative consequences if you don't take that action. And it's just the best way for us to connect to our dream customers to really communicate what we're trying to get at. We start with that shared pain point. We start with an anchor point start with a zig where people are zagging and we try and bring in that sense of loss aversion to make people understand exactly what we're talking about so that they can start to see the value and hopefully listeners you can start to implement these same techniques mind tricks what whatever you might call them to the same effect to help your business communicate better with your dream customers All right, listeners, key takeaways for this episode. Our brains are always looking for an easy route to take. As marketers, we need to lean into that and adjust our products and the journey into our product uh, that people take to purchase it to make it easy. Secondly, anchoring is a great technique you should introduce to your pricing to steer your dream customers to your best and most profitable option. And remember, the pain of loss is twice as powerful as the pleasure of gain. So make sure in your marketing messaging to speak to what your dream customers stand to lose by not buying a product or service like yours, rather than what they'll gain, at least initially. Very good. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, listeners, as always, you can find links to everything that we discussed in the show notes. And Kevin and I are so grateful that every week, more and more marketers tune into the B2B Playbook podcast every Monday morning. If we can ask one thing, it would be to pass the show on to someone who you think would get value from it. Also, make sure you check us out on YouTube. Like, subscribe, comment, all those wonderful things. It's a huge help to us and we'd really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you, Kev. Thank you, listeners. See you next week. Thank you, George. Thank you, listeners. See you all next week. 
A quick note before you go, listeners, you can find more great content and get in touch with us at theb2bplaybook.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter while you're there to get the latest news, tips, and resources from our playbook. We'll be back the same day and same time with another episode next week. Thanks for tuning in to the B2B Playbook. Remember, successful B2B marketing starts with the buyer.